Notable directors often have notable visual styles. Consider colour. Action director Michael Bay favours a saturated, hyperrealist palette, which is perfectly suited to his high-octane, effects-laden adventures. By contrast, Wes Anderson's subtle comedies come with a bright palette, but no matter how bright the palette, and no matter how many colours he uses, each colour is ever so subtly muted. As for David Fincher, it seems he paints his dark thrillers with just two colours, teal and beige. But that is because he prefers low-key lighting and low-contrast grading to neutralise all other colours within his frame. Now consider Steven Spielberg. Jaws, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, the early Indiana Jones films, E.T., The Colour Purple and Empire of the Sun. They each feature strong tones. Whether his cinematographer was Bill Butler, Wilmarsh Zygmunt, Douglas Slocum or Alan Davio, there was a vibrancy that perfectly matched Spielberg's optimistic stories. That changed, however, in the early 1990s when he first collaborated with Janusz Kaminski. Here is Kaminski talking about their collaboration. From the very beginning, there was very little collaboration in a sense that, well, let's do this thing like this, let's look at the material, let's look at pictures, let's look at paintings, let's look at other movies. Uh, he does his work, I do my work. Uh, he's very complimentary, I'm very complimentary of his work. Uh, we mutually respect our, our decisions, which is the best way to work. For me, it's the best way to work. I like to be left alone, just let me do my work, you know. Uh, that's when I'm hired. You trusted, to, you trusted your, your instinct to hire me to, to begin with, let me do my work, you know. Kaminski was born in Poland in 1959 and fled his homeland when, in 1981, the communist regime cracked down on the pro-democracy movement Solidarity and imposed martial law. Arriving in the United States, Kaminsky studied at Columbia College in Chicago before enrolling at the American Film Institute in New York. He graduated in 1987 and within a year had secured his first credit with the rarely seen Lisa, winning the Lion Eagle Award at the Illinois Film Festival. Despite this auspicious start, Kaminsky then found himself working on B-movies for Roger Corman. Here is Kaminsky recalling the experience. No, you know, the Roger Corman experience was not a learning experience. You go there to really aim with some knowledge, because if you learn movies, if you learn how to make movies at Corman's, you really, you really learn it the wrong way. Uh, what happened with Roger, he was one of the very few people during that time that was making those low-budget movies, and, and we were able to go there and the director and the cinematographer and the production designer usually were the people who have, who've had some prior experience to, to, to Roger Corman's experience, you know. In 1991, Kaminsky got a call from Diane Keaton, asking him to light her TV movie, Wildflower. It proved a serious break, because his work on the drama caught Steven Spielberg's eye. Spielberg's production company, Amblin, was set to start another TV movie, Class of 61. That's 1861, not 1961, which means it's set during the US Civil War. There, Kaminsky was given lighting duties. Whether Kaminsky knew it or not, it was an audition, because off the back of it, Spielberg called him in to discuss Schindler's List. The collaboration won both artists their first Academy Awards, and Kaminsky has lit every Spielberg movie ever since. That's 15 films over 23 years. Now, I said that Spielberg's vibrant colour scheme changed with Kaminsky, and while there are exceptions such as Warhorse and Bridge of Spies, for the most part Kaminsky has cooled Spielberg's palette. 
The first real evidence came in 1998 with Saving Private Ryan, when Kaminsky opted for a desaturated look, draining the screen of strong colours often associated with war dramas. Ah, uh, Ryan. I don't know anything about Ryan. I don't care. Man means nothing to me. It's just a name. But if. You know, if going to Ramel and finding him so he can go home, if that earns me the right to get back to my wife, well, then. then that's my mission. Then came the adaptation of science fiction author Philip K. Dick's short story, Minority Report. Spielberg had done sci-fi before, not only Close Encounters and E.T., but even earlier in his pre-professional career. Several of his short films were within that all-too-often underestimated genre. Minority Report had been knocking around Hollywood ever since another Dick short story, We Can Remember For You Wholesale, was made into Total Recall. And in fact, Minority Report had been in development as a sort of sequel to Paul Verhoeven's box office hit. Intrigued by the premise, a police officer is forced to go on the run when he is accused of a murder he is yet to commit. Spielberg eagerly snapped it up. It wasn't just because Minority Report was in the sci-fi genre, it was because of the moral, legal and political ramifications inherent within Dick's writing. Here is Spielberg speaking about the fact that within months of the 9-11 attacks, the Bush administration had withdrawn habeas corpus, which meant that a person could now be charged on the mere suspicion that they were going to commit a crime. The film is totally informed, informed by that, and then all the political implications that were involved in free will and knowing what your future is, and if the government can ever get control of what you're going to do with your future, if it's going to harm somebody, does government have the legal right to literally put you out of commission for the rest of your life because of a murder you haven't yet committed, but the government is certain you will? Spielberg has said that he wanted Minority Report to be the ugliest, dirtiest film he had ever made. And certainly, Kaminsky's treatment of the image, where he oversaw a bleach bypass, resulted in a highly unique visual treatment. As the term suggests, Bleach bypass is a technique that dates from the days of celluloid, where film was developed in a bath, and as per Kaminsky's dictation, the print came back with almost half the colours drained away, leaving only thin, blown-out highlights and deep, heavy shadows. It meant that one colour dominated, blue. Well, again, it's a, it, you know, it's a, it's a near-future film, so you want to create aesthetics that are you know, different from what we used to, but not too... Uh, eccentric so people cannot identify. So we wanted to go into greedy, kind of bluish, very greedy and full of grain and kind of, you know, you can touch the film almost, you know, you, shiny objects, you know, against, against dark walls, you know, that kind of stuff. There is a reason why Spielberg and Kaminsky wanted blue as their dominant colour. And that was because it synchronised with the film's visual motif, which in turn fed into the story's themes. The visual motif is water. Water is where the precogs lie in their trance-like states before they transmit their visions of future crimes. Garden sprinklers are what John Anderton and his pre-crime team must race through to locate the crime scene in the opening sequence. A swimming pool is where Anderton's son, Sean, was abducted. A lake is where Anne Lively was drowned. A spray bottle is what Dr. Heinemann uses to feed her exotic plants. A bath is where Anderton must hide when his colleagues let loose the heat-seeking spiders to locate his whereabouts. 
Rain is what Agatha forecasts will assist Anderton in his escape. Upon her instruction, he grabs an umbrella for cover. And finally, Marshland is where Agatha and the twins live out their future. So why the water? As a symbol, water can connote anything from life, fertility and purity to healing and cleansing. Cleansing has a religious connotation and Minority Report has more than its fair share of biblical references. And those biblical references all entail sight. In other words, the way the film looks. Literally looks. I'm not talking about its appearance. I mean the way the film treats the very act of looking. You have dilating pupils, retinal scans, reading glasses, eyeglasses, sunglasses, video cameras, surveillance cameras, photographs, windows, screens, video screens, rear view mirrors, and of course eyes themselves. You have the drug dealer who has no eyes but who says, In the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. Dr. Heinemann, whom Anderson consults for advice, her name is Iris. The exotic flowers in her greenhouse, doll's eye. At one point in the movie, Anderson has an eye transplant. Then of course we have the visions of the precogs, which are referred to as prophecies. But wait a minute, a prophecy is only a prophecy if it comes true. What if it doesn't come true? It is just a vision that lied. No, Minority Report is not so much about looking as it is about seeing falsely. Which brings me back to water. Yes, water is cleansing, but in the film, water also obscures sight. And now, since we are aware of all those complications, we should consider how the film's ending has been obscured. Spielberg is a director often accused of not knowing how to end his pictures, frequently adding yet another coda that grants the film an undeserved happy ending. And that chimes in with another criticism that his films are relentlessly upbeat, and no matter what the subject, even if it is the Holocaust, he will always tax on a happy ending, even if that ending happens after the story has already ended. But whether those speculations are valid or not, Minority Report is not the movie you might think it is. As the film enters its third act, Anderton is tracked down, arrested by the pre-crime unit and incarcerated. But with the assistance of his estranged wife, he escapes and is soon on the path to delivering justice. And it all ends happily, right? As I said, this film is about seeing falsely. So let's back up a bit and reconsider the moment Anderton is actually imprisoned. You're a part of my flock now, John. Welcome. It's actually kind of a rush. They say you have visions. That your life flashes before your eyes. That all your dreams come true. From then on, the remainder of the film is just that. A vision. A dream. A wish that Anderton has that he will somehow escape from the crypt and right the wrongs. Anderton fantasizes that by correcting the past, he brings about a utopian future. A world in which pre-crime does not exist. Lives are never predetermined, 
and the precogs are allowed to live out their days in bucolic tranquility. We believe that Anderton has survived and that justice has prevailed. But it hasn't, and he hasn't. So how does it work here, and why do we accept it? Because we want the happy ending. We want Spielberg to deliver the assurance that as sure as the stars shine down, there will be peace and order in the world. So only a director like Spielberg, who is as famed for his optimism as he is for his success, could pull off such a trick and sell us the lie of the ending. Worse, he leaves us exactly where he leaves Anderson, in the dark, looking at dreams, thinking they're real. When actual fact, they're just science fiction.